Many years ago, Riley Knight completed a degree in history. This proved to be a bad move, as it was absolutely useless for him. Until now, here's some half-assed history. What's going on, mate? Great to have you along for some more half-assed history. This week on the agenda, going to be having a chat about an unsung hero of medical history, the fellow that you can thank today for the huge focus that we're all, of course, right now, today, literally when this episode is coming out, we've got this huge focus today on washing your damn hands, and it's all thanks to this fellow, Ignaz Semmelweis. So Ignaz Semmelweis, he was a medical pioneer. He was one of the very first people to recognise how important hand hygiene is when it comes to health. He did some pioneering work. He saved countless lives with his theories and his practices. But tragically, his story is not a happy one at all. This is, uh, this is you know, off the beaten path of, of half-assed history. Rather than, you know, the silliness, the goofs, the spoofs, the giggles, this story is very much, a, it's a very, very sad one. It is indeed a tragedy. But it's a very important one, and I think one that, you know, today as we, as we you know, deal with COVID-19, with the coronavirus, and it'll give us a little bit of historical perspective on, on how we got to the position we're in now with this, with this huge focus on, on hygiene, especially hand hygiene. Anyway, Zemmelweis himself, he was mocked, he was ridiculed for his pioneering ideas, he was ultimately rejected by and, and shunned from, you know, the, the mainstream medical community at the time. I mean, he didn't help his case by being, you know, a, a grumpy old bastard, especially towards the end there, but I'll tell you what. When you hear what he went through, you'll probably begin to understand why he was such a, a such a you know a crotchety old coot here. The long and the short of it is this, right? While working as an obstetrician, he absolutely obliterated the mortality rates of the clinics that he oversaw simply thanks to his insistence that medical staff wash their hands. Now, unfortunately, his ideas didn't catch on for a very long time, and he himself was treated atrociously until his death under truly tragic circumstances, as we'll come to. But today, at least, he's remembered as a, as a heroic maverick of medical hygiene, and uh, and, he, and he gets some of, the, some of the recognition he deserves today in the 21st century. And of course, as I said, the planet, in the grips of a pandemic, it's worth reflecting on and remembering people like Ignaz Semmelweis, uh, again, whose pioneering work, it echoes through the years, and it keeps people alive even today. So let's get to this bloke's story, tragic as well as it was, and let's learn what our mate Zemmelweis was all about. So we're going all the way back to 1818 here, just over 200 years ago, when young Ignaz Zemmelweis was born in Buda to Josef Zemmelweis and Therese Müller. Now, Buda, of course, is today part of Budapest in Hungary, although Zemmelweis's family was, uh, was of German origin. And they were quite wealthy, too. His old man was a successful grocer, and uh, his kids enjoyed a relatively prosperous upbringing. Uh, Zemmelweis was the fifth of ten children. Obviously, Josef and Therese were, uh, were big fans of each other there. And uh, in, uh, in 1837, he headed to the University of Vienna in Austria to study law. Um, now, he didn't last very long in law, which ultimately, for the health of our species, was a very good thing. Uh, but we don't exactly know why. We don't know why he sort of dropped out of law. But by the next year, he had switched out of law into medicine. And in 1844, he graduated with a, a doctorate degree in medicine. Nice one. Uh, good on you there, mate. And went on to specialise in obstetrics, uh, which in case you don't know, it's the study of, of pregnancy and childbirth. I mean, you know, it's still as that if you did know, but that's not really the point here, is it? So anyway, after he's done all his specialisation work, he snags himself a gig at the Vienna General Hospital in 1846 in the first 
obstetrical clinic. Now he was in a position of some authority too. He's you know he's cut about he'd go about examining patients, instructing other doctors, uh, you know, uh, instructing, uh, talking also to students, overseeing delicate or difficult childbirths, and, and generally, you know, didn't quite have the run of the place, but he was he was definitely, you know, in management, I think probably the best way we can phrase it uh, by today's standards. Uh, so he's going, he's going about, he's doing a good job of things, keeping everything ticking along. But as he's doing this, he notices something very troubling about the obstetrical clinics at the hospital. Before we get into that, however, let's zoom out a little bit and talk about what these clinics were. Before we talk about what he realised, let's, let's actually sort of set the scene here. We'll talk about what they were and what they were trying to achieve. Now, infanticide, terribly, was a, was a, it was a horrible reality of the time. Uh, poverty-stricken women who carried illegitimate children often didn't have the means to raise a kid. And so, uh, again, horrifically, this would sometimes lead to, uh, to abandonment or, or worse for these poor babies. Uh, and so these clinics, they were set up for impoverished or vulnerable women uh, or sex workers uh, to provide free care of babies and young children. And in exchange, the women who bore these children would help with the training of doctors and nurses as they underwent childbirth. Now, considering we're in the, the mid-19th century here, this doesn't actually sound like too bad of an, an arrangement, to be honest. It seems quite forward thinking in, in principle anyway. But as I say, however, Zemmelweis, he noticed something extremely, extremely troubling about these clinics at the Vienna General Hospital. There were two clinics that were rather inventively named, the first clinic and the second clinic. And while both of these clinics were used for the instruction and teaching of young medical students, right, the first had all the doctors, or it taught, you know, up-and-coming doctors, people who were training to become doctors, and the second taught and trained nurses and midwives. And for some reason, the mortality rate at the first clinic was more than twice the mortality rate of the second. 10% of the women admitted to the first clinic died. 10%. While the mortality rate at the second clinic was 4%. Still bloody high. Still very bloody high. But you'd definitely rather take your chances by going to the second clinic, eh? I mean, that's a no-brainer. But the thing is, the first clinic was, you know, arguably, at least on paper, it was supposed to be the better one because that's where all the doctors are being trained, you know, the, the people undergoing highly rigorous and, and specialised medical training rather than the, the nurses and the midwives who, of course, don't, don't receive the, the same degree of medical training there. So on paper, at least, you'd think the first one would be better, would be safer, but it wasn't. Nearly, nearly twice as lethal, sorry, more than twice as lethal than the second one here. So a very, very troubling, uh, a very troubling thing for Semmelweis to realise after he'd gone over the numbers because these poor women, right, these poor women, they come into the clinics and many of them were dying of postpartum infections, known back then as childbed fever. And as I say, way more of them were meeting their end in the first clinic and not in the second. It got so bad, right, that women would arrive at the hospital and beg on their knees not to be admitted to the first clinic. They would be begging and begging and begging to go to the second clinic instead. The reputation of the first clinic, it was so it got so bad. This is what happened. Some women, right, would delay going to the hospital at all and instead choose to have their child in the street on the way, as that meant that they were still eligible for the benefits of going to the clinic without actually having to, having to give birth there. That's how scared these women were. Imagine this. The clinic's reputation was so far down the gurgler that women were choosing to give birth in the street rather than risk being sent to the first clinic or even the second clinic with its, again, relatively high mortality rates here. I mean, unbelievable, unbelievable. And Zemmelweis, he was torn up. He was torn to bits by this whole thing. And at the time, right, this is how bad it got for him personally as he was trying to solve this problem. He wrote that this 
made me feel so miserable that life seemed worthless. This bloke obviously had a real ticker in his chest. He obviously cared very deeply for his patients, and he hated that they were being put in danger in the hospital. But what really puzzled and concerned him, however, what really, you know, he, what he really couldn't wrap his head around is that the women that were giving birth in the street, right, hardly ever came down with a postpartum infection. And this didn't make any sense to our mate Zemmelweis, who couldn't figure out how it had become safer for a woman to give birth on the footpath rather than, you know, in a bloody hospital. So he resolved, therefore, to find out what the cause of all of this was and why the mortality rates were so different between the two clinics, why women who gave birth in the street ended up healthier than those in a hospital, and of course, what he could then do about it to fix this problem. So firstly, he investigated whether it was linked to overcrowding. Both clinics were, as you can probably guess, full as a goog almost all the time, but it was the second clinic and not the first that was usually worse off in that regard, so it probably wasn't having anything to do with overcrowding, seeing, seeing as the second clinic was marginally safer than the first. Secondly, he tested the climates and the atmospheres of the two institutions, but he found that they were broadly similar, at least not different enough, different enough to cause you know, such a huge discrepancy in, in the mortality rates, and especially didn't do anything to explain why you know, giving birth on the, on the, on the street was, uh, was any better than the clinics there. So poor old Zemmelweis, he did everything he could think of to try to find out what was behind it all, but he didn't have any luck until 1847, because in 1847, he had a breakthrough, although it was under rather tragic circumstances here, and this is a character, this is very characteristic of his story here, his first major breakthrough was on the back of a tragedy, because a mate of Zemmelweis's, another doctor whose name was Jakob Kolechka, he had been doing a post-mortem examination when, uh, when he was accidentally cut with one of the scalpels that was being used on the cadaver. Now, poor old Kolechka, he ended up dying after this. He picked up a host of nasty diseases, many of which had similar symptoms to these postpartum diseases, suffered by so many of the poor women in these clinics. Now, this, this got Zemmelweis thinking. This got him asking, asking all sorts of questions. So he popped on his thinking cap, he sits down, he goes, look, I'm going to puzzle this one out, I'm going to do whatever it takes, I'm going to figure this one out, come hell or high water, I'm going to, I'm going to solve this problem and find out what's going on. So... After once again going through all the similarities and all the differences between the first and the second clinics, he came across one of the key distinctions between the two, and he honed in on that. And you may have already figured out what it was here, because remember that I said that doctors were trained at the first clinic, whereas nurses and midwives were trained at the second. Well, doctors, as part of their training, of course were exposed to cadavers, to corpses, right, which they would examine and learn from, as you would expect, cut them up to bits, see all the inside, the nasty bits inside, and how they all work, you know, they all fit together and work. I, I, I'm not a trained doctor. You probably didn't realise that by the way that I'm talking about this, with an air of, you know, expertise, but I'm, I'm not a trained doctor. I don't know what they do with those uh, those dead bodies, but presumably, presumably they're cut, chopping them up in little bits and figuring out how they all work there, right? So all the doctors are doing that in the first clinic. They're, you know, they're, they're, they're working with these cadavers to, to further their medical knowledge. And of course, course, right, nurses and midwives in the second clinic, they never trained with cadavers and were hardly ever exposed to them. So from this, Zemmelweis made a very intelligent deduction, very intelligent, intelligent deduction indeed, therefore, and he realised that the mortality rate in the respective clinics was related to the fact that doctors performed autopsies and the nurses and the midwives did not. Zemmelweis made a revolutionary proposal, one that is going to sound laughably obvious to us today, but the only reason that we find it so laughably obvious 
is because he figured it out almost two centuries ago and we've had decades and decades to accept it for the truth that it is. Zemmelweis contended that what he called cadaverous particles were found in the corpses used for autopsies and training and that these particles stayed on the hands of the doctors and the students as they then went and attended to women in childbirth. And this explained very neatly indeed why the mortality rate in the first clinic was 10%, whereas in the second, where there were many fewer doctors, it was the much lower 4%. And of course, women who gave birth in the street, who never came into contact with a doctor during childbirth, hardly ever came down with postpartum infections. So, with one stroke of genius, Zemmelweis had figured it out. Again, you might think it was obvious, and that his cadaverous particles were plainly just germs, you know, what we'd, uh, what we'd call them today. But here's the thing. Here's the thing. Germs, at this point in history, they weren't a thing. The, today, today, the word germ refers to, you know, a, a microscopic infectious organism or a virus, which technically, strictly speaking, isn't an organism. But you know, I guess pathogens is the better, better thing to call them, what the medical world would call a pathogen, right? We all know about these things today, germs, right? But in the mid-19th century, these ideas just didn't exist. They didn't exist as they do today. There were theories here and there. There were isolated examples of, of, of people, you know, experimenting or theorizing about, about you know, again, what what Zimmelweis called cadaverous particles, you know, the, the, the transmission of, of diseases through, through microscopic, tiny little things, right? But the widespread acceptance of, uh, of, of germ theory is still decades away. I mean, the naming of it is, is decades away, and Zimmelweis's cadaverous particles are truly, truly revolutionary. Many people had theorised about the existence of these microorganisms, as I'd said. There was a, a fellow whose name was Athanasius Kircher. He'd even written about the decay of bodies being linked to, a, you know, tiny living things invisible to the naked eye, for example. This is way back in the 17th century. But germs were not a part of mainstream medical thinking when Zemmelweis was cutting about in Vienna. And they definitely weren't anywhere on the radar as he came out with this revolutionary new theory. Because Zemmelweis, he concluded that these postpartum infections, the, the infections, this, this, you know, what, what they called childbed fever, was in fact contagious, and that it was being spread by doctors who had performed autopsies and then seen to patients with inf what were basically infectious hands. So he asserted that disease had a single source, uncleanliness, a lack of hygiene. And after having made this discovery, he leapt into action to try to prevent these infections from continuing. And he, you know, the, this was in and of itself a completely unheard of idea. When you think of all of the huge, the huge variety of, of diseases, infections and maladies and illnesses that existed at the time, for a bloke to come out and say, well, look, honestly, everyone, it all comes down to one thing, keeping yourself clean. These things are transmitted by, you know, these particles we can't see. And this was, it was, it was revolutionary. It was, it was a complete paradigm shift here that Semmelweis was putting forth. And I'll tell you what, he didn't just rest on his laurels. He was a man of action. He mandated immediately that all doctors, all doctors in his hospital, wash their hands in a solution of chlorinated lime. Basically today what we'd call bleach powder, reasoning that chlorinated lime was the most effective thing in removing the smell of corpses, and therefore it probably was also going to be very effective in the removal of these cadaverous particles, or as we call them today, these germs. Now, whatever the actual chemistry behind it was, I can tell you this, Zemmelweis's decision to force his colleagues to wash their hands caused a staggeringly swift drop in the mortality rates in both the first and second clinics. In April 1847, the mortality rate was as high as 18%. Imagine that. 
But after Semmelweis began the hand-washing policy in May, June's mortality rate, two months after it was as high as 18%, June's mortality rate was 2%. And by September, it had dropped to zero. He had taken it from one in 10, or or even one in six women dying after giving birth to actual factual zero. He's done it. He's a hero. Get around him. Bloody legend. Ignaz Zemmelweis. Crack the case. Bloody well done. Well, I mean, good on you, mate. Good on you, old son. Can't believe your luck. But here is where the story turns tragic. Because as Zemmelweis sought to share his success story, he hit brick wall after brick wall after brick wall. The medical establishment laughed at him for a suggestion that cleanliness and hygiene was all that mattered in preventing these deaths. If you'll believe it, even as late as 170 years ago, trained medical professionals laughed in the face of a man suggesting that washing your hands was a good way to, you know, not kill your patients. And it went further, went much further than ridicule too. Zemmelweis was actively shunned and rejected by medical colleagues in both Austria and farther abroad. At this point in history, many, many, many doctors, many medical professionals still believed in the theory of the four humours, a theory that dated back to ancient Greece. Now, look, I'm not knocking the ancient Greeks, did a lot of good work, got a lot of stuff right. But they definitely missed the mark with the humours, I'll tell you this. The basic idea, we're not going to go too deep on it, the basic idea of the humours is that people are influenced by the balance of four different humours or chemical systems in our bodies. The humours were blood, yellow bile, black bile and phlegm, right? Now, these were linked to the seasons and to the elements, earth, air, fire and water. Um, And they were also supposed to determine your personality. Have you ever heard of someone being described as phlegmatic or sanguine or or choleric or probably most famously melancholic? All of these words come from the theory of the four humours. It's it's utter nonsense, obviously. Of course, it's utter nonsense. But people had stuck to this theory for two millennia, and by the powers, they weren't going to change their minds now, were they? Tiny, cadaverous particles indeed. This Zemmelweis bloke, he's off his trolley. Clearly, clearly these deaths are just an imbalance in the, I don't know, in the... In the phlegm of this poor woman who's, you know, dying of childbed fever, that must be it. Unfortunately, for poor old Zemmelweis and, you know, somewhat more broadly, the entire human race, his new theory was completely and utterly rejected by the medical establishment of the time. Zemmelweis was not a famous doctor. He wasn't a highly respected professor or a learned master of his craft. He was he was just a hospital doctor. He was out there in the trenches using his eyes and his ears and his brain to figure out some pretty grand truths about the world. But his lack of reputation made it very easy for people to dismiss him out of hand and stick to what they knew instead. And even worse than this, all of the ridicule, the rejection, may have also been due to one of the most insidious and damaging forces in the human psyche. Pride. There are indications that many doctors actually took Zemmelweis's findings personally and that they were insulted at the suggestion that they, as gentlemen, would have dirty hands that required washing. Imagine, my friends, for a moment, imagine having your head stuck so far up your own ass that you don't want to wash your hands. Look, I'm probably getting a little carried away here, to be honest. Look, the problem, the real problem was with a lot of these doctors, it wasn't necessarily, you know, with the idea of hand washing, although certainly a lot of them didn't like that idea, didn't like being told what to do. But the problem a lot of them had was with the overall thrust of Zemmelweis's idea. I said before, they simply couldn't believe that Zemmelweis, you know, Zemmelweis making this claim, they couldn't believe that disease, illness and infection could be caused by what they saw as one single factor 
in uncleanliness. Samuel Weiss is going around and saying, mate, wash your hands, keep things clean, and people will stop dying. And they're going, how can you possibly hope to prevent all these different diseases with something so simple? Something It doesn't all come back to, it can't possibly all come back to one single cause. Now, of course, today, we know that there are countless numbers of pathogens, and they, they all cause different ailments. But back then, the perception was that Zemmelweis was saying, wash your hands and all these diseases will go away like magic, as though there was, you know, this panacea that would get rid of all these different pathogens. And today we know that pathogens, you know, despite their diversity, are effectively combated by general hygiene. Today it seems laughably obvious. But back then, it seemed absolutely incredulous and totally laughable. Now, look, in fairness, I have to say there's one caveat to all of this. There is, you know, I want to, I want in fairness to Zemmelweis's critics, I do want to say this. We do have to point something out. There wasn't an explanation for his findings. Today, we can sit here in the 21st century and go, yep, cadaverous particles, you're pretty close. We call them germs these days, but still bloody good job, Ignaz old son. You're very close to the mark there. But back then, there was no way for Zemmelweis to explain his results and findings other than an unproven theory. And of course, ironclad empirical evidence, you know, with the results, these mortality rates, obviously, you know, going through the floor here like that. However, however, right... Even though the results spoke for themselves, I think it's only fair to point out that Zemmelweis was probably rightfully questioned by those seeking the why of the matter rather than just the what. People not blindly accepting the results and asking, well, how did this happen? What what are the processes going on to prevent people from dying here? You can't just say it's washing your hands and, and be done with it. You know, we didn't they didn't understand germs, they didn't understand uh, understand pathogens. So I think it's right for people to ask questions. But the fact that he was so roundly rejected, but the fact that he was so roundly ridiculed for, for this, this, this revolutionary idea that people didn't want to pick up and run with, I mean, that, that's another story. That's, you know, that's where we talk about people being on the wrong side of history. Nonetheless, however, in the face of all of this criticism and all of this ridicule, Zemmelweis, he ploughed on with pushing his ideas as far and as wide as he could. Towards the end of 1847 and into 1848, Zemmelweis's students, who were obviously, you know, on board with his radical new idea, whether they liked it or not, they wrote letters, they published essays, they made submissions to medical journals, they gave lectures, they did everything they could to spread this new life-saving saving knowledge to the world. And while the results spoke for themselves, I've said, and while many doctors throughout Europe were interested to learn of Zemmelweis's discoveries, his suggested practices did not, in the face of all conceivable logic, they did not catch on more broadly. People just were not ready to admit that, you know, just basic hand hygiene was going to prevent all these diseases. They they, they, they overlooked it as something too simple and too easy, right, to be this, uh, again, this panacea that would, uh, would take care of all of these diseases. And additionally, I have to say, Zemmelweis didn't help things himself by publishing nothing on his ideas. He left it to his students. And so all this material that was being put out there was, in effect, secondhand, which, of course, made it even easier for other doctors, uh, made, made them all the more ready to dismiss it out of hand. Now, all of those factors that I mentioned before, belief, perseverance and the humours, a lack of scientific explanation, all that wounded pride, um, it, it combined to ensure, ensure that Semmelweis was never really taken very seriously, you know, hardly anywhere at all. Doctors refused to believe that tiny invisible particles could wreak, you know, wreak such havoc. They questioned his methods. They suggested that it was coincidence. They criticised the evidence that he put forward and even said that as a Catholic, he was basing his theory on Catholic superstition. This poor bloke, right, with this revolutionary idea, he got dragged through the mud. He had his theories ripped to pieces, at the, ripped apart at the seams they were, and he was heartily rejected as unscientific, as unscientific, a grave and injurious insult to be sure. But again, to be fair, it seems as though Zemmelweis didn't publish or promote his ideas as clearly as he could have and left plenty of room for people to tear them apart like this. But, you know, 
Talk about being on the wrong side of history, all these other doctors. It doesn't matter if, uh, if Zemmelweis is a grumpy old coot. He's not going to stand up and defend his ideas properly. Still, all these people, bloody hell, they got it wrong. And unfortunately, unfortunately for Zemmelweis, and, and, and you know, you probably know what I'm going to say. You probably can guess what I'm going to say next. It's a half-ass history classic. You love to hear it. Unfortunately, it only got worse from here. Because in 1848, as you may be aware, a series of political revolutions tore through Europe known as the Springtime of Nations in Italy, France, Germany, Denmark, even as far as Ireland, plenty of other places as well, much of Central and Western Europe, uh, was caught up. It was all caught up in revolutionary fervour. And this revolutionary energy didn't spare Austria and Hungary either. We're not going to go too deep on the Springtime of Nations, perhaps another time. But the long and the short of it was that protests and demonstrations began to spring up in Vienna all over the place. And while there's not much evidence to suggest that Zemmelweis was involved in the revolutionary process, seems uh, process uh, protests here, some, some of his family may have been, um, but this was a pretext that was used by some of his, uh, some of his uh, more rambunctious opponents to discredit him medically as well as politically. And he was, this was enough for him to be tarred with the same brush, a useful way to deep-six the career of someone who they perceived to be you know, a perpetual thorn in their side with all this nonsense of uh, talk of hand-washing. Zemmelweis's boss, Johann Klein, who was a dyed-in-the-wool Austrian loyalist who wasn't a big fan, fan of Zemmelweis either, he used uh, Zemmelweis's uh, perceived, uh, you know, rebel and and revolutionary sympathies as a pretext to get rid of him. And this was really the beginning of the end of his career because Zemmelweis's term as a doctor at the Vienna General Hospital was coming to an end in 1848. And despite him reapplying, it might have been 1849 actually, around this time anyway, um, it was coming to an end. And, and despite him reapplying uh, to continue on in his position, he was passed over for purely political reasons by this bloke, Johann Klein. Klein went further than this. After dismissing him from the Vienna General Hospital, he pulled the old, you'll never work in this town again. And after getting rid of Zemmelweis from the hospital, he then influenced others to block Zemmelweis's attempt to move into academia and become a docent and a lecturer. Zemmelweis was, was portrayed as a troublemaker. He was portrayed as being more bothered than he was worth. And the Viennese medical establishment fell in behind Klein and closed their ranks on him. And as you might expect, this was too much for Zemmelweis to bear. And so ultimately, after rejection after rejection, he finally chucked in the towel. In 1850, after one insult too many, he packed up his bags and he left town. He had received an appointment as the docent of theoretical obstetrics. What an affront. What an insult. And he decided after this that enough was enough. To have, caught, to, to have all of his hard work, all of his life-saving knowledge be dismissed out of hand as theoretical, it was too much for this poor man to bear. And as a result, as I say, he packed up and left, but didn't even say goodbye to his friends and colleagues before he left, uh, you know, before he headed to, to Pest back in Hungary. And this probably didn't help his calls all that much, to be honest, as it was a very rude thing to do, and, and it put them all offside with him. But I mean, come on, the poor bloke, cut him some slack. He's been through so much, and, and of, co of course, mate... There's still so much more to come. He was not received warmly in Pest, where Austrian Habsburgs had cracked down on Hungarian revolutionaries. You know, here's this fancy doctor arriving from Vienna now in the wake of that. It was, it was not the best timing for Zemmelweis to return to, uh, to Hungary. But he did all right for himself despite this. He got an obstetrical position in, at a hospital in Pest, where once again, childbed fever under his leadership, uh, it plummeted. It was rampant before he arrived, women dying left, right and centre, and he took up the position in 1851, and over the next four years, with him in charge, the mortality rate dropped to less than 1% by 1855. But again, again, unbelievably, 
His findings were roundly rejected, even by other obstetricians in Budapest. The professor of obstetrics at the University of Pest, uh, uh, this this bloke named Edith Florian Burley, he insisted that childbed fever was not caused by, you know, these cadaverous particles or anything else like that, and rather was caused by the bowels, and so insisted on treating women with what was rather colourfully described as extensive purging. Ugh. I mean, yeah, sure. Great. Why not, why not extensively purge some poor woman's bowels rather than, you know, wash your damn hands? Now, Burley, he, he did die. He died in 1854. And, and Semmelweis actually applied for his position at the University of Pest. But uh, his old foe, Klein, wasn't finished yet and instead did some moving and shaking to ensure that Semmelweis was passed over yet again, this time for one of Klein's assistants. Can you bloody believe it? What the bloody hell, mate? Talk about having a chip on your shoulder. What is going on there? Ultimately, however, Semmelweis did actually get the position. He, he did get the professorship at the university as Klein's former assistant couldn't speak Hungarian and was therefore removed shortly after he took up the position. But still, Semmelweis was forced to jump through a number of hoops before finally taking up this position. But once he did... He used his, uh, his newfound influence to spread his ideas about hand washing, but again, or attempt to at least, because again, they failed to catch on in any meaningful sense beyond his direct sphere of influence. The only real exceptions were, were in the UK, where his ideas were received a little more, more favourably, and throughout Germany, where many doctors were interested in and experimented with hand washing, although they rejected uh, Zimmelweis's key assertion that diseases could be linked back to general cleanliness. People were just not ready to accept the fact that, you know, infections, diseases, all the rest of it could be traced back to something as simple as hand hygiene. People weren't ready to, uh, to accept that. More or less everywhere else, however, I'm, uh, you know, I'm sorry to say that he continued to be laughed at and criticised. And after a while, this became, it just became too much for him to bear. It really just became too much for our poor mate Zemmelweis here. In 1857, he'd gotten married to a woman named Maria Weidenhofer, and they had five children together. But as the years went on, she began to notice some very profound changes in her husband's behaviour and personality. A lifetime of rejection and ridicule seemed to have taken its toll on Zemmelweis, who only in his mid-40s was starting to show signs of premature ageing, depression and nervous breakdown. In 1861, he published a series of open letters to his critics, which painted him as a bitter and furious man and were full of severe criticisms of his opponents, some of which really did go, I mean, some of went as far as calling them murderers. So it was pretty bloody full-on stuff from Zemmelweis there. He forced every single conversation he had with everyone onto the topic of postpartum infection and handwashing. He started ignoring his family, and most unfortunately, he started to hit the bottle. The man was breaking down. He was falling apart at the seams, and it's hard to blame him for it, as he'd made one of the most important medical breakthroughs in history, and no one would listen to him. But once again, once again, it only got worse from here for Paul Zemmelweis, as the 19th century approach to mental health wasn't exactly, you know, particularly sympathetic. And I'm very sorry to say that in 1865, Ignaz Zemmelweis was committed to a mental institution by his colleagues by way of trickery. He was invited to come and inspect a new medical institute in Vienna by Ferdinand Ritter von Hebra, an Austrian physician who had, uh, who had actually been a former supporter of, of Semmelweis, an old friend of his. And of course, this institute was, uh, was actually an asylum for the mentally ill. And while being lured in, Semmelweis realised that he'd been betrayed. He realised that he was being committed by his friends. He, he figured out what was happening and so attempted to leave. He tried to turn around and, uh, and flee at top speed out of, the, out of the asylum. But of course... The asylum guards, they grabbed him, they overpowered him, and I, and I hate to say that they beat the living daylights out of him as well. 
Zemmelweis was bundled into a straitjacket and he was locked in a dark cell. And uh, what can only very generously be described as his treatment then began. However, tragically, or, or perhaps mercifully, depending on how you look at it, he didn't live long enough to go through much of it. Ignaz Zemmelweis, the man whose discoveries have saved countless millions of lives, died on the 13th of August in 1865, aged just 47, after a wound he received while being beaten black and blue became infected and became gangrenous enough to kill him. And this wound, in what can only be described as a horrific twist of fate, was on one of the things he had worked so hard to keep so clean to protect his patients, it was on his right hand. Zemmelweis was buried in Vienna a few days after he died. Very few people attended the burial, and very few notices of his death appeared in the papers. At the University of Pest Maternity Clinic, the mortality rate immediately rose back up to 6%, and no one did or said anything about it. And today, as this episode is released, at a time of global pandemic, with the world in the grips of COVID-19, you can honour the memory of poor Ignaz Zemmelweis and help to ensure that his revolutionary work, the work for which he gave everything, continues to keep our species safe and healthy. And you can do it very simply by washing your damn hands. It's not just Semmelweis who died. It's the millions and millions of others who were killed by the arrogance and the ignorance of those who thought they knew better. In the years to come, the germ theory of disease would be investigated, tested, and ultimately proven by people such as Louis Pasteur, Robert Koch, and many others. And Semmelweis would, of course, enjoy his final vindication as a hero, as a maverick of medical history. Today, there are statues of Zemmelweis around the world. There are hospitals, clinics, and even a university that all bear his name. He's been on stamps. He's been on coins. even has a minor planet named after him. But the greatest legacy of a life spent in miserable rejection and abject ridicule is one of the most important medical breakthroughs in the history of our civilization. And you can honour the legacy of Ignaz Zemmelweis today. You can protect the health of your fellow humans. You can, just like Zemmelweis did, literally save the lives of other people just by washing your hands. But that's it. That's all she wrote today, sports fans. That is the story. That is the, tra- the tragedy of Ignaz Zemmelweis and uh, a story that I think is, is, is very much worth sharing, especially in, in the current climate today with the world in the grips of the COVID-19 uh, pandemic. This bloke was well and truly ahead of his time. And today, you know, one of the reasons that we're hoping to see off this pandemic as, uh, you know, as, as min- with as minimal harm as possible is because of the pioneering work that he did all those years ago. So thank you. Ignaz Zemmelweis for uh, for what for what you've given us and of course it's so it's such a tragic so it's so such a great shame that he didn't receive the uh, the recognition and the adulation that he he so richly deserved in his lifetime anyway that is that for this week all the boring housekeeping stuff coming your way here halfhousehistory.net is the uh, is the website you can find all the episodes there links to subscribe on iTunes Android and Spotify and a contact form of course if you want to send me an email I do read all the emails all the correspondence I receive I'm so sorry to the people that I don't manage to get back to just 
a sheer volume problem at this uh, at this point. If you want to grab some Half Ass History merch, head to uh, halfasshistory.bigcartel.com and you can pick up t-shirts, notebooks, all sorts of stuff there. Free global shipping available, of course. And uh, if you want to support me on Patreon, patreon.com slash halfasshistory, range of benefits there. You gain access to uh, uncut episodes, get uh, get episodes ahead of time, usually, and uh, show notes, all sorts of other stuff there as well. So uh, head over there and all contributions, as I say, accepted with uh, enormous gratitude and quiet disbelief. Thank you to the people who are sharing the show on Twitter and, of course, with their friends and enemies. Don't really care. They show up on the metrics just the same. Looks looks just as good, whether it's an enemy or a friend listening to it. So thank you so much uh, in uh, in my quest to get, uh, in, in helping me in my quest to get this, uh, this podcast into as many ears as possible. But that's just about that. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you back here next week, of course. Going to leave you now with a question posed on Reddit. This is a, a science question rather than a history question, but uh, one that's still very relevant, especially to the uh, the pandemic that we're uh, going through today. And it's posed by any underscore E, who asks, <clears throat> Is coronavirus better with Lyme disease?